21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Um, I think there's some great opportunities in the space around endings. So, especially if you're building products, everyone thinks like you you might build a product and like create a new niche in your in in this sort of sector, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Honestly, no one's looking at the end of the consumer lifecycle as a place to build products and develop entrepreneurial things. But there are a few businesses. So, for example, um, a company called Stuffster, they started to look at the second-hand market. Now, the trouble with the second-hand market, it's all it's very emotionally driven by individuals. It's not organised and it's certainly not having any database in it. But the genius thing with um, Stuffster, they said, let's just look at one sector, trainers and sportswear, and let's move upstream and get the database and the sales from a company that's selling a lot of that product. So they take Adidas and they partner with Adidas and everyone who buys Adidas trainers, they get a little date, what product, how much and who, who bought that product from. And then they build a platform called Stuffster and that person who bought those trainers can daily see how much their product is worth in the second-hand market and sell it instantly back to Stuffster. And that's the sort of thinking we need is to industrialize that end point instead of it being emotional and uh, instead of it being a very lonely experience for the consumer. We need to create innovation, entrepreneurial products in that section of the consumer life cycle because everywhere else is drowned out. But there's a whole world of stuff you can start playing with at the end of the consumer life cycle if you just flip your thinking because we're all trapped in this world in the business world of thinking there's nothing at the end but a lost customer honestly there's such a lot of gold there what made you focus on creating the best off-boarding experiences for companies in the first place So I come from a background of doing lots of product development. I'm, I've done, I worked in big companies, small companies. We ship products all over the world. And um, in that time, we used to get very passionate about the, the idea, the what are we going to tell? What's that story, that amazing thing which is going to make this product be incredible? And, and how we communicated that to the consumer. Then we would craft and design and hone the details of that so it's the most incredible usage experience and then we'd all walk away from it and all of the product development team will walk away from it and we sort of abandoned that conclusion to what happens at the end of this product that's sort of and you see that fall out into how consumers are abandoned at the end of the product life cycle a really good example is, um, and I used to work a lot in the mobile phone industry, so I was at Nokia and I'd done lots of product development and apps and um, different mobile phone companies. GIFGAF, a company in the UK, a carrier in the UK, they've just done some research and they found that there's 55 million phones in the UK 
abandoned in drawers. When people get a new phone, they uh, they look at the old phone and then just go, what should I do with that? And then they go, I don't know. And they'll put it in the drawer with the other five generations of mobile phones they've got. Because people are uninstructed at the end, we're abandoned and we're very worried about, especially it becomes a bigger problem around data as well. So you're compounding the problem as well with people concerned about what goes on with their data. So this is a massive problem and it's a customer ex experience problem. We talk about sustainability in the circular economy, but there's a big gap in this where the customer's got a product in their house and they can't get it back to the provider because they haven't been instructed, nurtured, cared for in that and, and bonded in that that sort of last quadrant of the consumer experience. How does offboarding help a company maintain uh, customer relationships if they are done? So they are not done or they are done with? That's a, a good and really important question. When many businesses spend a lot of time building up a a customer relationship. They've spent a lot of time building their brand and that brand equity over many, many years. And what tends to happen is they'll support the consumer as the consumer on board. So whether that be through great packaging design, great instruction manuals or great onboarding sequences on your mobile phone or service support. And that goes on as you go into a usage period. So you'll have a phone number to ring up or like a support package of some sort and as soon as the customer says they want to leave or like um, they start to offboard that experience then the, the relationship breaks down and we end up in this gap in the consumer life cycle and in this gap are four sort of problem characteristics that are found at the end of the consumer life cycle so the first one of those is the relationship breaks. And that relationship, as I was talking about earlier, is super exciting and precious at the beginning of the consumer lifecycle. Thank you, Joe, for being a customer of ours. But at the end, that just breaks apart and the assets of that relationship, including brand, fall to the feet of society and into the ether and into the environment. And you lose a lot of brand equity in that relationship. The second one of those is asset definition is lost. So if you think about your consumer experience at the beginning, I understand all the sort of details which make me want to buy a product, all its asset, all its definitions, very detailed. But as soon as I throw something into the waste stream or it goes into the sort of redundancy sort of area, all of its definition is lost and clouded. And, and that becomes a real problem because we can't then reprocess stuff. The third one is the actors and actions are anonymized. So at the beginning of the consumer life cycle, I buy something. There's loads of laws around protecting me and my ownership of, um, of that um, object. And so at the end, though, whether it's a very dangerous sort of, let's say, printer in cartridge or I've, I've done a really long flight, I'm anonymized for any impact that that's had. So um, so we have these problems around sort of measurement of the damage that I do. And lastly, routes to neutralizing are blurred. So what that means to the consumer, 
as a as a consumer, I eat an apple, let's say, and like I'm really confident I can throw that away and put it into any sort of um, place, and it will naturally decay in the environment. And that's I'm really comfortable with that. But as soon as I get into a, a human made product that is has complexity or detail, so for example, a plastic bag or a pen, a pen has like you know, fifth, uh, 10 sort of different elements to it, which are plastics and metals and inks and stuff. And so that becomes a real, uh, a real question in my mind about how does that get neutralized? So those are the four things that happen at the end of the consumer life cycle. And on top of that, there's a lot of loss in terms of the relationship, the brand equity that the, the company um, loses. What are the most important considerations when designing that specific off-boarding process? So one of the first things to do for any business is start talking about it. You'll be amazed how little the end of the consumer life cycle is discussed in any business. You'll happily talk about how many, almost, I ask anyone listening to this show, how many sales meetings do they go to every month? And they're probably like, oh, yeah, I went to this sales, this this department sales meeting. Have you ever been to an ending meeting? Has anyone got an idea of how their customers leave? And you'll have a comfortable conversation. And this is the only quadrant you'll have a comfortable conversation is if you talk about ending in terms of competition, that there's a competitor coming. There's eight different types of endings in the consumer life cycle beyond competition. So you can think about that in terms of um, timeout. That's like if you think about an ending, you go on a holiday, two-week holiday, it's a timeout ending. Exhaustion or credit out ending, like a fire extinguisher will be exhausted or de- or like you'll get a credit out ending on your pay-as-you-go profile. Task event completion. Um, a really good one of that and the most damaging one is um, coffee cups like or disposable things like your coffee disposable coffee cup has one task to do once that's completed it's the end broken and withdrawal sort of quite a common one you can break products if they're overexerted lingering and withdrawal is another type of ending so if you think about the most at the back of your wardrobe there's loads of objects or in your loft or your off-site storage that are just lingering there essentially they've ended their relationships but you haven't consciously gone into grapple with them proximity endings are a good one i experienced that when i moved from the uk to sweden i moved out of the service of the um uk on many levels and and moved to sweden but you also get proximity endings when you move from apple to android i've moved out of the proximity of apple and then cultural endings uh fashion is a really good example of that where we're really sophisticated beings so we can understand incredible nuance and fashion really um examples that as well so there's all of these types of endings but businesses only speak about one so coming back to your first point mine the best thing to start doing is talking about endings and the different types of endings that are experienced by your customers and once you start exposing yourself to that dialogue you can start to see opportunities and i build up that in the training that i do to start seeing the opportunities for your business to really improve the consumer offboarding experience there's some 
elements of saying goodbye to the consumer which are really good. We're good at doing service and what service would be even respectable on the base level without saying goodbye. But there's so much more in that on many levels. With the consumer, um, many consumers are a lot more anxious, for example, about climate change. So um, I don't know about you, but I would like to offset my my impact. But the trouble is that many of the airlines are selling that offsetting uh, onboarding. And I think it really needs to be moved to offboarding. The, the sort of the relationship needs to be embraced at offboarding so we bonded together and it feels like an experience that I'm bonded with a partner because as all of your listeners know offsetting doesn't go like that offsetting takes decades and the opportunity the opportunity lost by making offsetting is a an immediate thing at onboarding at the beginning of the consumer life cycle when you buy the ticket the opportunity lost is gigantic. <laughs> and if you think about the end and the opportunity you have to bond for potentially decades, then you've just thrown that away. I put it in another sense of, about opportunity lost. It might be interesting to build up on this thing. Um, in um, the advertising industry, um, a couple of groups one which was called um, the Purpose Disruptors. They are uh, a group which are advertising people which are worried about the environment. And they got together with a group called Magic Numbers. And Magic Numbers are a data analytics firm. And they do a, um, they got together and they looked at how much, what's the impact of advertising in terms of carbon? How much advertising com contributes to carbon in the UK? This is, but I think it can be extra. You know, you can spread it out to other countries. Um, and so they looked at all sorts of dimensions of how much uh, you put into advertising, how much carbon it gets hit on those sort of things. And they came out with a number, which and this was for COP last year, so the last COP thing, one hundred and eighty-six million tons of carbon is the impact for um for for um for the advertising industry in the uk to put that in context martin um the whole of the netherlands is 180 million tons of carbon so just the advertising in the uk so if we think of advertising as a, an emotional um uh, sort of experience at the onboarding then surely we can take that and reverse it into the offboarding and the opportunity lost by initiatives that go on elsewhere. So just think about the, all of that amount of carbon at the beginning driven by emotional messaging. Now let's think about the loss of uh, opportunity because we don't do emotional messaging. And this is what I'm talking about. Engineering, creating consumer offboarding experiences is emotional messaging at the end. So in the airline industry, for example, um, the 
International Air Transport Association, they think that there's only 1% of people offset their carbon footprint voluntarily. So that lost opportunity is 99%. If you're a business and you've made one, you've made one sale out of 100, no one will give you money to invest. Then we can go on to the um, lost opportunity for, for, for example, recycling rates in the UK households. That was, um, they can just get to 45% in 2017. So that's a lost opportunity of 54%. And then I go on, there's um, a, one about tons of global e-waste. Just 17.4% um, is um, uh, recycled. So that's a lost opportunity of 83.6%. And um, US recycling rates of PET bottles, so recycling um, jars and bottles, etc., just 29%. So you've got a 70% lost opportunity because we're not creating consumer offboarding experiences and engaging people emotionally at the end of the consumer life cycle. If we think about the emotions at the end of the consumer life cycle, there's like when I was talking just now, the lost opportunity there is all about emotion. If we don't have an engaging experience with a product, we're not going to buy a product. But equally, if we don't have an engaging experience at the end, then we're not going to sign up for these things that we need to do to save the planet and climate change. So a lot of it's about the mind, how people emotionally engage and how they reflect about things. So um, in engineering and, and the proposals I've put forward, the psychology of that is really important. So in the book, I talk about um, a number of different so, uh, psychological techniques that are really important to think about when you're designing endings. A classic one of those is um, by Daniel Kamen called Peak End Rule. Uh, many people will talk about that. And um, the, the theory he came up with is that People lay down memories in two places. They will remember the peak of an experience and the end of an experience. But because we don't work with endings very much, what we've decided to do almost in business is do repeated peaks and just hammer peaks home and forget about endings. But the end is super important. So if someone has great experiences with your product but a terrible ending you've basically zeroed out that benefit and so you've really got to think about the psychology that's going on and there's loads of psychology around endings coming from death to divorce to all sorts of things so in the book i talk about a number of those different psychological techniques that you can use can you share one Oh, yeah. So, well, peak end rule. And then I talk also about the um, closure, like seize and freeze. That's by um, Donna Webster and um, Ari Kaliansky. So these are these are um, techniques that I use to help people rethink about the um, the end and how important it is. So freeze and seize is about how humans want to look at closure. So when you think about um, getting closure in your consumer experiences, 
you can think about that in two ways. We try and approach things quickly, like, oh, I must send this, I must send that. And you always get that one with um, that immediacy thing. I want to do this quickly, especially in social media. Oh, I must post this, or I must, I must uh, post this Instagram. Where some closure experiences, you want to last permanently for a long time. That's things like interest rates or um, your pension or things like that, which you want to last for a long time and be secure. So all of these things help support the sort of thesis of the engineering thing, where we need to design consumer offboarding experiences. How do you think that the GDPR has empowered uh, consumers when it comes to product end of life uh, experiences? So I think that's a really important thing. If we think about many bits of legislation that get introduced into the consumer market, many of them are about protecting the consumer generally, but there's a lot of them which are about looking at the end. What's the justification? How do we get sort of satisfaction at the end that people aren't ripped off, etc.? And GDPR does that. So aspects of GDPR are protecting the consumer on different levels of experience in their data. But there's a lot of bits of GDPR which are looking at the end in particular. So, for example, even opening up your data to share it with a, let's say, banking, for example. I've got a bank account. I now have the power under GDPR to get my data and share it with another company to then potentially leave. So that is around your competition. You're going to open up competition as an individual. And I've been empowered to do that with GDPR. I also have the power to stop anyone looking at my data. If I've said yes to them looking at my data, I've now got the power to stop that. And um, so those are two different types of endings that start to get um, raised to the surface. And the last one, like um, right to be forgotten, that's a very brutal um, ending that you can enforce on a data provider and say, this is... I want my data to be erased off your platform and uh, I have the right to be forgotten. And sort of carrying on a little bit from GDPR, when we go onto a website, any one of us has to click on accepting cookies. Now, in GDPR and a lot of the other sort of protection, uh, the digital protection stuff around the world, cookies have to have uh, uh, an end date. You have to put into your, when you're building a website, you have to put an end date into it. How long will the cookie last? But if you look in the legislation, there's no expectation of what that should be. There's no legal requirement to say that your cookie should end on this date. So when I look into this sort of stuff, I start going through a website, and you can see all of your cookies, as you know, I start looking at the end dates of consent, because I have to give consent, and they're meant to be an end date, and it will be in days usually. And so I look through all of these, and you get the usual normal companies, Amazon, Google and stuff, and they go 10 years, 12 years. I, seriously, I've never had a computer the last anywhere near that, or phones, <laughs> even half that time. 
Then you get other companies that are looking at multiple uh, decades, so 50 years for like Home Depot, some other random company I've never heard of is asking for 90 years. And now I'm not going to even last 90 years. I'm 50 now. So I'm not going to last to another 90 years. So I'm looking at multi-generational acceptance of a cookie. But that doesn't even get near the problem. I get to um I get to another company and um they want me to sign off a cookie for 1692 years. And so if you think about that, if I went back in time 1692 years, I'd go back to Rome. I'd be asking someone in Rome, like a Roman citizen, and I'd say, can you approve this cookie consent for 1,000? And that wasn't even the worst one. The worst one was the company that I was looking through. They had a cookie on there for 9,972 years, I think. Unbelievable. But this is the important point about this is that the same problems we've been doing with physical pollution, et cetera, et cetera, we're doing the same with digital. We are scattering the digital landscape with crap that can last thousands of years. And that, I think, is worth thinking about. So when you're talking about the business model, Martin, I make money in a few different ways. So if you've ever asked an author if they make much money out of their books, no, you don't really. <laughs> you don't make money out of books. But what you do get is the authority to speak on the subject. To write any book, especially about business or techniques or anything, you've done ever such a lot of work on that. You know intimately how this thing works. So the first thing I done when I started looking into endings in the consumer life cycle is start researching the history of that, the sociological changes that happened over over a centuries really that gave me such a good grounding into looking at the damaging effects that we do with consumerism in a very different sort of fresh way and it came down to the ending of that consumer experience so come back to your point i don't make money out of books uh i do make money out of being an authority on the subject of endings in the consumer life cycle I make money out of doing um, conferences. I've gone all around the world doing big conferences. And I also make money out of training. So I do that in a few different ways. Uh, to the general public, you can sign up to the, the training course and um, I charge people for the training course. And in that, we go through all of the techniques and you get very practical and we have good discussions about it. And, and it's actually quite a bonding experience for people to sign up to the course. So you're in this cohort and you feel like real champions, like we can do something about stuff. And then I also have clients. Um, most of my clients come to me. The first thing I do is take them through the um, presentation. So that usually starts out with a talk at some sort of a product day or design day. And I will share with them the sort of foundations and the history. So it gets them in the mindset that we can do something about um, endings in the consumer lifecycle. Then 
I start to go in and do training with those companies, teaching them more of the practicalities of it, and then supporting them as they start to develop their own endings for their own products and services. So those those are the way that I make money out of this. But I, it's not that I have a special source that I'm going to sell and it's packaged up neat and tidy. I want businesses to start doing that for themselves. So I provide the encouragement and the training and the support and the teaching. Okay, so what I want everyone to do about engineering is start thinking about it. That's the baseline. Start thinking about it. Start looking at your product and what your offboarding experience is. You can buy the book. Look at the history of why we're in this problem, because this problem goes back centuries. It's not be the beginning of plastic and like the last problem with um, plastic in the sea. This problem goes back centuries. The next thing is to look at the second book, the engineering book, the how-to book, and start looking at the practical ways that you can improve your product offboarding experience, and you can start making solutions so your customers have a proper ending and you can capture and reclaim those materials practically. Look at the training program on the website, sign up to the cohort if you're a member of the public, get in touch with me if you're a company and you want your team to build better products at the end of product life. And then support the theme, become an evangelist, become an engineer, and it would be wonderful to meet you all. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.